0: Joe, I'm glad you guys are here, so welcome to Lynchburg City Church, and uh, for all of you guys listening online, uh, we miss you. Um, happy Mother's Day, Mom, and uh, to all the moms out there, a happy Mother's Day to you as well. We're glad that you're here or that you're listening with us right now online. Amos, Amos chapter 4, that's, that's where we're at today. I say this almost every week, for the, for the sake of time, I don't have the chance to, to do the, the lengthy introduction that we did in part one. And so if you like ancient Near East history, you can go to part one, lynchbrookcchurch.com, click on sermons or search City church on SoundCloud. And the first 10 minutes of part one it has the full introduction to this story. But what I can tell you is this, Amos comes on the scene sometime around 760 B.C., he comes on the scene to, to bring this word, to bring this message from God around 760 B.C. It's It's been kind of a golden age for the people for the last 40 years. They've been experiencing peace, prosperity, an economic boom of sorts. The times are good. Religious activity has increased. The problem is, it's just religious activity, or as the prophet Isaiah says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the people here. And so, Amos comes on the scene, and as we saw in part one, which covered chapter one and part of chapter two, he gives this pronouncement of judgment against all the surrounding nations for their evil and their wickedness. And then, he turns his attention to Judah, and then primarily to Israel for their wickedness, for their evil. Part of the issue that we've seen ongoing almost through every part of this series is the fact that these people are mistreating other people. A lot of mistreatment going on. And it should be no surprise uh, some of the things we're about to hear today. And so we pick up part four in chapter four, verse one. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Bashan, that's the scene here in verse one. A fertile plain, mountains on, on both sides of, of Bashan. Fertile plain. Real fertile plain, lush pasture land. Cows would come graze. And the charge that Amos brings is that these women are exploiting the poor. These women are mistreating the poor. And so he calls them cows. You cows of of Bashan. Now, just a, a, a word of warning. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this strategy, calling women cows. They probably wouldn't like that very much. But Amos can do it because Amos is a prophet and Amos is bringing this message on or as the spokesman of God. And as we'll see, these, these women are very evil. They're very evil. They're, they're very wicked. And so he addresses them as cows. As cows who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. The, the word crush here, it's to smash up, to ill-treat, to abuse These women of Bashan, they're abusing those that are needy. They're mistreating them. And they're telling their husbands, bring that we may drink. The the word bring here, it's it's imperative. It's not so much like bring as much as it's like bring, right? Bring! The the, the imperative nature, the determination here when they say bring, you're going to bring it right now. This is what I want. You're going to bring it. Doesn't matter who it hurts. Doesn't matter who else it affects. They wanted to, to feed and indulge this extravagant lifestyle that they had been come accustomed to. And it didn't matter at whose expense. It didn't matter what, how it may affect others. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted it when they wanted it and how they wanted it. And they didn't care about anything or anyone else. I suppose you could just call that selfishness of the most extreme sort. So he says in verse 2, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. He has sworn. The formula that he usually uses is declares the Lord. And and in saying he has sworn, it's a little bit more forceful than the typical declares the Lord, which is the, the normative formula throughout Amos. He sees what these women are doing. He sees all things, but he sees what's been happening here, and they're not getting away with it. It's not going unchecked whatsoever. That what is about to happen, it will happen, and he swears by his holiness, by his character. Now, we think about the character of God, and we know that God's a loving God, and he's a kind God, and he's patient, and and, and we like those parts about God. We like that God, God forgives. I remember talking to a lieutenant last summer about, about God and the gospel, and he's like, oh, but he's a, he forgives. He's a forgiving God. Um, well, people love to emphasize certain attributes of God because they like those ones better. And it's true. He is a forgiving God. He's a loving God. He's a kind God. Um, but he's also a holy God. And as a holy God, he, he can't tolerate sin. Can't be around sin. Sin, sin is a separation, a barrier between us and God. And not only that, but God's also a just God. He must punish sin. And we know what that punishment is. The Scriptures tell us. For the wages of sin is death. Separation from God for all of eternity in a real place of suffering and torment known as hell. He's appealing to His holiness here. He's a holy God. And He's appealing to this He says, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the word behold here is pointing to something that has not yet taken place, but it will take place. Hasn't taken place. It will take place. Behold, the days are coming upon you. When they shall take you, you referring to the cows, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Now, he doesn't explain who the they is or who's doing this, this action. And if you know about this time period, you know that this judgment that God is going to bring on these people will come. It won't come instantly. It'll come exactly when He has planned for it to come. He's writing the 760 BC. You know, in 722 BC, it comes with the full wrath and weight of the Assyrian Empire upon their doorsteps. But it's coming. It's coming. God has seen what these women have done. He's seen. The evil in Israel. And it might seem like they're getting away, but they're not. Punishment is coming. Judgment is coming. It's on its way. In fact, God promises. He swears by his own character, his own holiness, that you can bank on it. You can count on it. That they're going to take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks. The meaning here of the hooks and the fish hooks refer to refer to the, the dragging away of corpses and of captives together. So so this dragging away with these hooks and these fish hooks of both the dead and the living. It it paints this very bleak a picture of this disposal disposal of the of the cows of Besha. It's a very ugly picture. But then again, so is what they've been doing. It's also very ugly. And so he says this in verse 3. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. And you shall be cast out into Harman, or Harman, declares the Lord. The cows, these ladies, if you can call them that. They will no longer be protected by the walls of the city. There's going to be breaches in the walls. There's going to be holes in the walls from the destruction that will come when the Assyrians attack. They're no longer going to be protected. They're no longer going to get away with what they've been doing in verse 1. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. You say straight ahead, but... Straight ahead could be, if, if, if I'm here, that's straight ahead. If I, if I turn this way, that's straight ahead. If I'm here, that's straight ahead. So which is it? Like, he doesn't really specify. The point here in the picture is, is that straight ahead could be anywhere. It's not gonna be like a little, a little breach there or there, but it's showing this total destruction of the city, of the nation. It doesn't really matter where you are in the city. If you look straight ahead, there's gonna be breaches in the walls because they've totally been devastated by this enemy. They've totally been devastated by this enemy. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into har, declares the Lord. The, the problem with Harmon or Haman is that no such place exists. We don't, we don't know where this place is. So it, it makes kind of, understanding the full picture that Amos paints for us in verse 3 here, a little challenging. It's a a very rare word that's used. In fact, it's only used in one other place, that is in Isaiah 25.10. Hayes, one commentator, believes that the word is referring to a dung pit or a garbage heap, since that seems to be the usage of it in Isaiah 25.10. And whether Amos had that in mind here, it's unclear, but I think regardless of the picture of Harmon that you're going to be cast into Harmon, whether it's a dung pit or a garbage heap. I, the point I think that Amos is trying to convey is that these ladies of great wealth who have treated, mistreated other people, they're going to have a rather undignified departure. A very undignified departure from their former life of luxury those people who oppress the poor who crush the needy in order to advance themselves they can expect this same type of judgment people aren't getting away with it sometimes it seems that way they're not they're not at all so this is what he says in verse 4 and 5 I really like verse four and five, by the way. Once again, if you're a fan of sarcasm, you'll like four and five as well. But he says this, Come to Bethel and sin. Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply your sins, multiply your transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, by the time of Jeroboam II, son of Joash, Bethel and Gilgal were Israel's popular shrines. In fact, Gilgal, if you go back to the story of Joshua chapter 4, verse 20, they just cross miraculously the river Jordan, and after that, they gather some stones, they set up a memorial to remember this this episode that took place, and as if you were here last week, we talked about Bethel. It means, if you remember anybody? Yes, yes, house of God. It, it means house of God. It was the place where Jacob met the Lord above the, the stairway to heaven. These are really popular, holy sites. Bethel and Gilgal. And, and he says, listen, you guys should totally come to Bethel and Gilgal and just sin it up with us. Just come and sin. Just come and sin. Be like me saying, Hey, I'd love for you to come to Lynchburg City Church. And like while you're sitting out there, just, just open up your tablets. And if you want to look at pornography while you're sitting there in the pews, just, just have at it. If you want to do things with your girlfriend that you're not married to? Yeah, just have at it. Just whatever you want to do. Just come here and sin. He'd be like, what is going on? I'm like, people don't talk like that. You come here, right? You come here to hear the, the word of God proclaim. You come here to, to worship God in song through giving and, and other ways. And Bethel and Gilgal are a holy sites. These are where you come to worship. And, and he says, Come and sin. Come and do all these disgusting things. Won't you? Won't you come and do all these disgusting things, Israel? You see, the ironic thing here is he's not calling them to do anything new. He's not calling them to do anything new by inviting them to come to Bethel and Gilgal to sin. Rather, he's simply calling what they're already doing for what it is. They're going to Bethel and Gilgal. Yes, to, to quote-unquote, worship God. But in reality, as we've seen, especially last week, they're sinning. Now, I've said this almost every week. Religious activity has increased in Israel. The problem is, it's just religious activity. There's just a joke. Like so many, quote-unquote, Christians today. Just a joke. So are these people. Note the, the sarcasm. I mean, think about Think are what he's saying here? Like, hey, come to Bethel and Gilgal and just send it up, right? Do whatever you want to do because you're already doing it anyways. So then he says this: proclaim free will offerings, publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. Proclaim. The word proclaim here, it means to brag, to boast, to make known. It is the prideful attitude that they have that he's referring to here. It's like those keyboard warriors out there. Instagram, Facebook, whatever. It's, it's like you're taking to social media and you're like, man, I just, uh, I just did this really great thing or I just did this really kind and, and generous thing. Hashtag humility. <laughs> like, like what? they're coming he's like yeah come bring come do all these religious type things and then you know what just boast about it just brag about it yeah when they played uh, when they played that last song I, I held both hands up during worship like I was really holy this is the people here they love to publish their, their accolades it, it reminds you of the story in the gospel right of the, the Pharisee who comes and he prays he says oh thank you God that I'm not like this other sinner right here That's these folks. They're just a joke. They're just a joke. They love to brag about their generosity. They love to, they love to brag about their religious activity. In fact, Israel loved their religious activity. But religious activity, that's not the same thing as loving God. Religious activity is not the same thing as loving God. See, see, our motive. Our motive comes into question at this point, and our motives really, really matter. Is our our motive to show love for the God who's been so good and gracious to us? Is or is our motive just to, to show our love for religion? That's the problem in Israel. They're just jokes they're they're pretending essentially to be application the Christian of the year they're trying to be like the Christian of the year all the while not caring what they do or how they treat other people they don't care they want to publish all their accolades and all their their aspects of worship but how they act and how they live. They're a joke. And other people might not know. But God knows. And Amos is making that very clear right now. And so, he says this. Verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The picture is famine. Their teeth are clean because they have nothing to put in their mouth. Because they have lack of bread. That's the picture here, verse 6. There's famine. They don't have food. So God, the picture here is God is disciplining them. And instead of it being a wake-up call, it's not. They just keep on... Living however they want to live. And it says, and yet you did not return to me. That word returned, right there, this is the primary word for repentance in the Old Testament. You think it would have been a wake-up call when they don't have food to eat. Some of you, I don't know if you can imagine this because I can't think of a day in my life where I've never not had food. Like maybe I forgot to eat because it was a really busy day. I can never think of a day where I never actually had food to eat. Where I had to miss a meal because there just wasn't food. So so you think about this, like you're like, okay, come on Israel, like like God's disciplining you here, like are you not going to repent? Are you not going to return to him? You've You've deviated off the path, you should be over here. Like how much more is it going to take for you to come back? And yet they did not return. Then verse 7 and 8 says this, "'I also withheld the rain from you "'when there were yet three months to the harvest,' I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to the other city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So this is kind of seven and eight. They're kind of linked together very much. God caused this drought to happen. And and this this ties definitely a little bit into part 3 in Amos 3.6 when Amos says, Does disaster come to the city unless the Lord has brought it? And, and on this note, it's very clear here that this dramatic sequence of events is, is showcasing the power and sovereignty of God. And I, I know we love to say God's sovereign, but I, I meet so many people who, while testifying to his sovereignty, like to say, well, but, as if we need to insert a, a, a but in here and then create gaps in his sovereignty. And I, and I understand why, because they, at the same time, they want to make sure it's clear that God, He doesn't sin, and that He doesn't remove human responsibility, and that He's still compassionate. And, and I would totally agree to those, those points. But I, I know what that feeling is, is oftentimes just a very emotional response. We don't like to think of God doing something that is going to be hurtful or, or negative or uncomfortable or unpleasant, and yes... Yet, he does. Amos 3, 6 is very clear on that. Does disaster come to a city? Unless the Lord has brought it. And then here in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. God causes this drought. In a very dramatic fashion. In a, in a fashion that just can't be explained. Because we love to explain things away, right? Why'd the storm come? High pressure system, low pressure system. That's why that the storm came. That's why that hurricane came. That's why the hurricane killed people. Uh, caused millions of dollars worth of damage. But as we have said every week, those are secondary issues. God causes this drought in just a very dramatic fashion to where it's raining in one city and not the other. It's it's like it's it's raining on Timberlake, but not Ward's Road. It's it's raining on on, on South Campus or the Commons, but not on East. And it's not just like for a day. It's just month after month after month so that these people are like, okay, like, that seems kind of like a fluke, but I don't know what. Uh, but we're out of water, and then they have to wander to the other cities to get water. That's like, that's, that's, is that a coincidence? we got to explain that away somehow. How do we explain the fact that it's literally raining here, but not here? Here, not here. How do we explain that away? And the point is, in this very dramatic fashion, is that God brought the drought. God brought the drought. God's in control of The rain. God, God's purpose in the drought here in verse seven and eight is to reveal that He's only God. No doubt, as we, as we saw last week in part three, the Israelites were probably guilty at least of some form of Canaanite worship. And if you know anything about Canaanite worship, the God of the storm is Baal. Baal is the God of the storm. Baal brings the waters that nourish the crops. Yahweh's the God of the storm. Yahweh makes it rain, or Yahweh doesn't make it rain. He is God. And it doesn't matter if you keep on praying and keep on doing all your religious activity. It won't make a lick of difference. He is the God of the storm. And He is sovereign. And He is sovereign over all things. And this very powerfully dramatic Illustrated verses 7 and 8 is God's purpose in this drought causing this drought you say but people are going to die because of the drought probably yes God is sovereign over all things he can do whatever he wants to do and he doesn't sin he doesn't remove human responsibility and he's still compassionate and good and great and powerful and yet yet the people still don't return. They still don't return. If if you were starving to death, you're like, we need rain for our crops. It's literally raining right across the street. Okay, maybe one day, maybe a week, but three months of this, you think they'd get the picture. God's trying to get their attention. And yet, verse 8, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse nine. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees. They're lost, the the, the locusts devoured, yet you didn't return to me, declares the Lord. Blight, mildew, these crop diseases. And they wouldn't return. Religious activity increased. Kept going, but to no avail, and they wouldn't return. And then verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, I carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The picture here is the exodus. The exodus, Egypt people lived in slavery for 400 years. And God caused plague after plague to wreck Egypt because they opposed him. And yet, like Egypt, so is Israel, opposing God, rebelling against God, disobeying God. And so, like Egypt, he sends plagues. With the hope of persuading them to, to repent, to return to Him, and, and they don't. They don't. And we were in a small group. Tuesday night, and I think, I think it was Jonah, and he said, Why aren't they repenting? Why, 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 why does this keep happening? They're kind of stupid. Yes! Sin is stupid! sin is so stupid and they haven't repented they're like Pharaoh and Moses comes and he says let my people go and Pharaoh says no plague after plague after plague and Moses comes and Israel like Pharaoh when told to repent when told to surrender Says, let my people go and Israel, like Pharaoh, say, no way, not gonna happen. Don't want to. I want to do my own thing right now. I wanna do my own thing. I don't I I know what I should be doing. I don't want to do that. I wanna do me right now. Just me, nobody else. And you think they get the picture? Like people are dying. All this is happening. Verses six and seven and eight and nine and ten and yet They didn't return. They don't want to return. Verse eleven I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Sometimes people say, I wish you'd tell more stories, Joe. Any more illustrations. The reason I don't is because I usually have enough illustrations to go on just by the text alone. So the picture here is Sodom and Gomorrah. These ancient cities, very evil cities, very wicked cities. And they're essentially consumed. If you know the story, they're consumed. They're annihilated. They're annihilated like napalm bomb coming down metaphorically. Just lighten that place up. Everyone dying, everyone dying, with the exception, you know, of Lot and his family. They're spared. God sends angels, they come, they rescue Lot, they rescue Lot's family. God is good. God is gracious. They don't deserve it. He does it anyways. He saves them. He spares them. He says, Israel, you're like that. You're like Lot and his family. You're like a brand in a fire. A pile of of, of wood and, and the fire is engulfing and consuming this entire this entire pile of wood and i pull out this brand i pull out this stick that's caught on fire blow it off the rest of the wood pile goes up and i save you i spare you you don't you don't deserve it i just do it i'm good to you i'm gracious like that and what's their response gratitude God, thank you. Thank you for sparing us time and time again throughout our history. Thank you, God. We didn't deserve it, man. The way we've been acting, and yet you're so generous and you're so good. That's not their response. That should be their response. It's not their response. And yet, you didn't return to me, declares the Lord. You think it would be a wake-up call? They're lucky to be alive? It's not. They keep going and they keep doing their own thing. And so he says in verse 12, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. It is, it's a terrifying verse. Terrifying thought to imagine. It's one thing to meet God, but it's another to meet God when you're not prepared to meet God. It's terrifying. Thought. Prepare to, to meet him face to face. He hasn't gotten your attention, you haven't returned, you haven't repented, you haven't, you're not doing what you should be doing. Prepare to meet Him. I think there's definitely some application here for every single person, whether they call themselves a Christian or not. For those who, who don't know God, it, it's a terrifying picture to think of the wrath of God poured out. You know, my, my own dad, he's not a Christian. And you guys have people you care about. And maybe they say they're a Christian, but in a very Titus one sixteen way they profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions, how they live. They're a joke like these folks here. To think of what 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 awaits these people for the the wages of sin is death. Separation in a real place of suffering and hell and torment like for forever. And that's that's what awaits. Like he says, prepared to meet God. Um, but these people are not prepared to meet God. That's the point. They're not prepared to meet God. As we've seen from verses 6 to 11. I can't think of a more terrifying scene. Everything that they've experienced, the hurt, the pain, people are dying, but they still won't return to him. They still won't repent. You think God would have their attention? And they're doing their own thing that's going to seem like a drop in the bucket says all right prepare to meet him and he goes to verse 13 and no doubt verse 13 serves really this terrifying picture he says for behold He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. What makes verse 12 so terrifying is to know the reality of verse 13, to feel the weight and the magnitude of verse 13. This isn't just some random, run-of-the-muck God. This is the God who forms mountains. This is the God who creates the wind. I don't even know what that, that's like, but he just creates wind. He creates the wind and he, he makes morning darkness, darkness, morning. And you think about this. Think about even the picture of verse 13, like he creates the wind. He, he puts the stars in the sky. He, he breathes life into life. He tells the mountains to move and they move. He tells the wind, go and it goes. And then he says, Israel, return to me. And they say, no. Like, does anybody have a problem with that? They just, no. It's just arrogant to think that like the mountains and the wind and the sun and the stars and the moon and all of creation obeys him at his word and then he says return to me and they say no kind of makes verse 12 that much more terrifying i got it you're not returning so get ready amos tell them get ready to meet me it's terrifying and you say well that's not they have a chance to repent sure they do but as he's made very clear in verse 2 the lord god has sworn by his holiness that behold the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks even the last of you with fish hooks that's great you should definitely repent but it doesn't necessarily negate the consequences of your actions the consequences are coming they are on their way god is not withdrawing them and it's just a, a constant reminder that sin has consequences we might not always experience those immediately but it has consequences and sometimes we think because it hasn't, we haven't felt the effect of it we haven't felt the effect of the consequence in regards to our sin that somehow maybe we've dodged a bullet we've escaped the notice of God <laughs> the notice of God right no of course not prepared to meet your God and I'm thinking what is going on with these folks it's been pretty clear to them that God's trying to get their attention and they keep running they keep doing their own thing why because sin is stupid and they're being very stupid and there comes a point in our lives where like. We either have to embrace the path that they are on, or we have to be like, okay, we really should learn from their mistakes. We, we really need to repent. We need to return to God. We need to just finally put our hands up and say, all right, I'm done fighting you. I got it. You're trying to get my attention. I've been ignoring you. But you know what? Here and now, like, I'm bowing the knee. I'm surrendering. I'm not fighting you anymore. I don't, I don't want to, to experience the things that these people have experienced. There comes a point where, like, I just wonder, like, whether you're here right now, you're listening online, like, how much longer are you going to keep ignoring the fact that God, either through discipline or through one gracious episode after another gracious episode in your life, that He's trying to get your attention? Like, how much more is it going to take before you finally listen, before you finally return to Him? Lest we meet him in an unprepared state. I'd like the band to come up here for a second, and I'd like to just pray for us. Lord, Lord, please help us. Help us not to be like these people. They're, they're just they're like Jonah, just running away from you. As if that's possible. And, and you're doing all these things in our life right now, whether through acts of discipline or acts of mercy and grace, to get our attention. God, I thank you for your patience. I don't want to presume upon it. God, we need your help. Bible stories are great. They're fun, they're exciting. But if we walk out of here, and that's all it was, was just a fun, exciting story, and nothing more than that, then we just wasted like this this, this time here learning about this story in chapter 4 I pray that this would be more than just words on a page for myself for myself for the people here hearing my voice for myself I'm sorry God for the moments where I've dropped the ball the moments where I've ignored you trying to get my attention in my own life I thank you for your patience i thank you knowing that despite maybe our commonality with the people in this story that the prophet says your mercies are new every day great is your faithfulness that's really good news especially when we hear a story like this so god i pray that you would grant us all a heart of repentance as paul prays in second Timothy 2.25, that you would perhaps grant us a heart of repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that we'd stop running, we'd stop rebelling, that we'd surrender, wave our white flag, that we'd bow to you, the one who moves the mountains and creates the wind. You're great. You're awesome. We love you. Amen.